Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Talks in Class. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I'm Jenna. This is a really fun episode that I'm excited for. It was a really fun one to record, but also just to prepare for. And honestly, right now, I have a long list of episodes that I'm excited about. And a lot of them are things that just feel a little bit more specific and kind of nerdy. Just really specific things like deep dives into nostalgic topics and cultural topics. And that's really what I love about nostalgia kind of the most are the ways that these really specific feeling situations can also feel really universal at the same time when you start to talk to people around your same age. And if you're a social media follower, you've probably seen I'm currently obsessed with creating collages of niche nostalgic kind of aesthetics on this app called Shuffles. It's a new app from Pinterest, but you can use it to make collages. So I've been making these like aesthetic shuffles. And a lot of those are inspiring me to do podcast episodes about similar or related topics. And this happens a lot. I'll make content for social media that will then inspire a podcast episode so that it can go a little bit deeper into the topic or vice versa. A podcast episode will inspire shorter form videos for social media. But anyway, lots of fun episodes coming up, lots of interesting topics. And also while we're on the topic of nostalgia anyway, which this is a nostalgia podcast, so that makes sense. I went to see the new Mean Girls movie a couple days ago. And before I get into what I thought about it, I have to preface this by saying two things, two very important things. Number one, I do not like musical movies. And when I say I do not like musical movies, I mean like I really don't, they're not my thing. I have a hard time sitting through them with a couple notable exceptions. I just really hate them. But number two, I love, love Mean Girls. I mean, obviously, as a millennial woman, I love Mean Girls. I love Tina Fey. So as expected, I have mixed feelings about the movie. I did see the Broadway show back in early 2020. And most, if not all of the music is the same. So I think that fact made it more tolerable for me because it was like I could almost pretend that I was watching the show again, or at least I had that connection. The cast was really great overall, I will say that. With a remake, especially with a remake with such a great original cast, it's very hard to live up to that, but they were really good. There were some originals from the first movie in the movie, obviously Tina Fey is Miss Norbury and whatever, it was funny, it was very cute. But yeah, my my thoughts are mixed. On the one hand, Mean Girls, decently funny, you know, great cast, Tina Fey. But on the other hand, like straight up remake just with Gen Z jokes and like Disney Channel feeling musical numbers. The music numbers were very Disney Channel, I'll, I'll say that. So I don't know. If I didn't enjoy the movie going experience, I would probably have waited for it to come to streaming. But I am happy to see that Mean Girls is being introduced to a whole new generation. They deserve it. We all, we all do. We all deserve Mean Girls. Anyway, I will start as always with my what good happened. And no surprise here, if you've been listening for a while, this week's what good happened is yet another really great thrifting find, which I love. There is this Claire V clutch bag that I've wanted for years, like since 2017 or something like that. It's cheetah print, which I firmly believe is a neutral, but with all of this talk of mob wife aesthetic coming back, it seems like the perfect print for this winter. It's kind of expensive, at least in my opinion anyway. I'm just not a bag person. It's not something that I typically spend on unless it's 
a basic that I'm going to use all the time, like every day. So I haven't bought it just because I didn't want to pay the retail price. I keep a note in my phone with all of these items that I'm kind of keeping a lookout for on places like Poshmark, eBay, or just wherever I might find things. And last week I found the bag on Poshmark for like 75% off of the retail price and it looks almost brand new. It's in such great condition. It was such a great find. I was so excited. You guys know nothing, nothing gets me excited quite like a really great thrift find. So with that said, let's get into this week's episode because this is a fun one. For this week's episode, I was inspired by just conversations that I have with you guys all the time about various random kind of seeming things that so many of us seem to experience unknowingly in very much the the same ways during the same time periods. So I chose a few examples and decided to do a little digging to find out the answer to the question that we all seem to ask when we recall these kind of random universal experiences. And that is, where did that come from? One of my favorite things about doing this nostalgia content creation and this journey that I have had on it, especially doing it on social media, is connecting with so many people from so many different places, I mean, all over the world, and realizing how many things that I experienced in childhood or my teens or even in college that at the time I maybe didn't even give a second thought to, or maybe I thought were original ideas or you know some sort of experiences that were unique to me or my friends or my school or my town or whatever, were actually very common and somewhat universal experiences for people around the same age at the same time. People from all over the country, or even in some cases all over the world, also experienced in almost exactly the same way. And I don't know if it's just childhood or if it was the fact that I really came of age pre-internet where we just didn't have this global perspective or awareness of this interconnectedness, but I had no idea that things that I was doing for most of my childhood and teen years and even a little bit beyond that were part of just this really big shared generational experience. I was just living my life totally unaware of all of the ways that I was being influenced, never really giving a thought to why I liked the things that I did or believed that I, the things that I did or, you know, who came up with these ideas that I was being taught in whatever way or, you know, all of these things. And so often I find myself talking to other people now about some shared experience that none of us realized wasn't unique to us and saying, where did this come from? Why did we all do that? How did we all know? And there are countless examples. There's obvious examples like trends, you know, why did kids everywhere love Lisa Frank or gel pens or those space saver pencil cases that we all had. I have one right behind me if you're watching on video or scrunching our hair and straightening our bangs or the idea of being a marine biologist. Like where did that come from? <laughs> And then there are examples that I think are more just a product of the time or specific pop culture of the time, like watching TRL and eating a kudos bar or playing on those dangerous wooden playgrounds from the 90s or burning your butt so bad on a metal slide on a sunny day or going on AOL or listening to Delilah on the radio. I definitely thought that she was local. Come to find out people all over were listening to Delilah. And those kinds of examples are 
also amazing and super fun to talk about. But then there are the even more random ones, you know, the types of things you never, ever really think about until somebody brings it up and you're like, oh my God, I did that too. I had no idea that that was happening elsewhere. And you really wonder like, where did that come from? Why did we all do this? How did we all learn to fold our notes in the exact same way in the 90s? You know the way, the one where you would fold it into a rectangle and then you'd end up with the two diagonal folds across the front of the little rectangle and you could tuck one of the little corners in. Origami in general, I feel was really popular in the 90s. I remember kids learning how to make certain things and it became kind of like a party trick for kids and we felt really cool being able to do that. It was something that we could learn and then like show off to our friends but also a way to just entertain ourselves before we had technology to keep us occupied every single minute of the day. We did arts and craft type things, but there was also sort of this big Eastern influence in fashion and design and pop culture kind of in general in the mid to late 90s really specifically. And a lot of it reads very problematic now looking back, but this was the era where girls were wearing chopsticks in their hair and you can buy them in the Delia's catalog and clothing companies were mass producing baby tees and spaghetti strap dresses with Buddha printed on them. We saw this in a ton of teen movies. So maybe that has something to do with the origami craze and therefore the notes. But the fascinating thing to me is how these things spread in the days before social media was such a monumental part of our day-to-day -day lives and the way that we communicated with other people our age. I can think of a lot of places I could have learned the note thing. Maybe it was Girl Scout camp. Maybe it was my cool older friend who lived a couple towns over. Maybe it was my teenage babysitter who I absolutely idolized. I copied pretty much everything that she did that I could have copied, so that is highly likely. But either way, these things did manage to spread somewhat organically, at least, to kids everywhere, far and wide. And speaking of things that spread like wildfire to kids everywhere, one of the greatest mysteries of our generation is that Marilyn Manson rumor. I know so many of you know exactly what I'm talking about just by saying that before I even have to explain. But if you do not know, if you somehow lived through the 90s and early 2000s without hearing this rumor, or if you're just too young to know, there was a rumor which really has become something of an urban legend <laughs> amongst like kids of this time, that Marilyn Manson had his ribs removed or a rib maybe so that he could perform certain sexual acts on himself <laughs> and aside from this being completely absurd there is zero evidence to support this claim anywhere and yes people have definitely looked there are no medical records which i assume there would be if he had his ribs removed i i assume he had that done professionally not did it himself uh there's no confirmed reports from anybody i mean this clearly is not true, but it spread like crazy. I mean, this is absolutely the type of thing that a 12 year old boy would just completely eat up. This is the perfect kind of trash <laughs> to feed to a preteen boy and let it spread like crazy. I can just see my little classmates who ran around sixth grade doing the suck it, you know, the wrestling suck it thing to each other on the playground, somehow stumbling upon this rumor in some 
AOL chat room in 1999 and literally sprinting to the house phone to call their little friends to tell them all about it. I mean, it's just the perfect fodder for a rumor that would spread like crazy amongst kids. And there are a lot of theories uh, out there about where this rumor originated from. One Reddit user claims that it was actually started by his own PR team in order to gain publicity and kind of support his reputation or personal brand at the time as controversial and, and just shocking. He was really known for being a shocking public figure, which I mean, yeah, that would have been on brand for him, kind of a strange way to go about it, but would have been on brand. But the most probable origin story seems to be the most obvious and, you know, kind of the least sensational one. It was started by some rando on the internet. Early internet days where, I mean, people still believe everything that they hear on the internet regardless of the source, but back in the 90s, I mean, it was really questionable out there. So probably some kid who posted it on the internet somewhere in a forum that Marilyn Manson likes pleasuring himself. And from there, Supposedly, it was exaggerated and twisted and expanded upon like some, you know, early internet AOL game of telephone into the rumor that we all literally heard at some point or another as kids or teenagers. However, Marilyn Manson did sort of address this, saying that he likes being provocative, which doesn't mean that his people necessarily started the rumor, but it kind of feels to me like he wasn't in a hurry to address it or shut it down because it did support this image that he wanted to portray publicly that he obviously made a whole career off of. And he once told Letterman that he has always measured success, quote, not only by the number of people that love you, but by the ones that hate you too, end quote, which I think we can all agree. He definitely succeeded at doing that. But then there were the way less exciting, less sensational, just much more random things that we all somehow did that nobody quite knows why. And one of the best examples of this, I think, is the S thing. Millennials, Gen X, you guys already know what I mean. The letter S that we would draw all over our notebooks and books by connecting two sets of three parallel lines with diagonal lines that would go from left to right, and then putting the points on the top and the bottom, creating this sort of geometric shaped letter S. I personally like to draw the letter S as the first letter in the word smile, which I would complete with bubble lettering. Another elementary school millennial staple was bubble lettering. I wonder if kids still do that, but the S thing spread far and wide. Where did it come from? As you would imagine, there are also a ton of theories on this that you may have heard over the years. Everything from the belief that this was the logo to some 80s hairband, uh, a variation of the Superman S, which I think that was on my radar in elementary school. I may have actually believed that at one point. Or very commonly, the logo or the original logo for the company Stussy which I had actually never heard the Stussy thing until very, very recently, but apparently this is really widespread belief about the, the S thing. And apparently a lot of people know this as the Stussy S. And this was based on the idea, again, that this was the original logo or just in some way affiliated with the brand, but that's not actually true. It has nothing to do with Stussy and it never did, which a rep from the brand has confirmed probably many, many times over the years. I would guess that this is a question that they have received more than once over the years. And the S was actually around way before the brand, so that kind of completely debunks that theory. 
I'm not even sure what my friends and I called this growing up because I've heard a lot of people call it the Stussy S, the Super S, the Cool S. I think we just called it like the S thing or maybe just the S. I'm not really sure. So I did a lot of research on this and this is a rabbit hole you could go really deep down. <laughs> but unfortunately, I don't have any definitive origins to report on the S thing. Some people think that it has origins in graffiti culture. Some people more specifically point to LA based gang graffiti. Other people think it's a variation on the infinity symbol because it kind of goes continuously around like that. Like if you didn't block off the sides, it could kind of look like an infinity symbol, which kind of makes sense. And it also just makes it interesting and kind of fun to draw. It's also formulaic and it's really easy to do once you've mastered it. Kind of like the note folding or weaving a friendship bracelet or playing Cat's Cradle. I think muscle memory would literally still take over for me if someone were to set up Cat's Cradle for me. I think I would be able to get through at least the first three or four moves without even really thinking about it because it's just built into my body from so many years of doing it. So it's relatively easy to grasp and then it's really easy to replicate over and over and over once you've learned it, which I just think that makes it cool and exciting for kids. And also it's something that you can then kind of show off by teaching to other kids and it makes you look cool. I used to love teaching my friends how to make different friendship bracelet styles, you know, like the different kinds of knots that you can make with the friendship bracelets or how to do the moving cat's cradle where you would flip your hands around and then pass the string to somebody else. Or I remember also learning to draw a cube, like a 3D cube and being really excited about that. So it does seem like the most likely explanation for the S thing spreading around the kid world like crazy generation after generation after generation is just simply that it's fun and it's kind of easy to draw and it looks really cool. But my favorite possible origin story of the S is that Scholastic Books, a staple of all of our childhoods probably, used it in a puzzle in an early kids educational book. So basically, it was a way to kind of teach kids logic. And they would set it up by giving you the, the three sets of parallel lines, the way that we would begin drawing the S. And then the puzzle would ask you to create the letter S by only drawing eight more lines. And, you know, considering that Scholastic Books was such a pivotal part of so many of our school age memories, I like that theory. Personally, that's my favorite. So even if it's not the true origin of the shape, which it's probably not, I'm gonna go with that one in my mind. And speaking of our school age memories, I think this is where some of my favorite, super random, but also super, I mean, kind of unbelievably universal experiences come from. And I think my favorite of these school kind of universal experiences that feel really random examples are the Y2K era school agendas with those plastic covers that would show two different images depending on how you were looking at it when you moved it side to side. You guys know the ones, the ones that we would all scratch the covers of <laughs> with our pens to annoy our classmates and teachers that were just absolutely everywhere at the time. But here's the thing. None of us had any idea. I am truly amazed by how many people had these exact same planners. I've talked to people from nearly every US state who had these exact same planners. But the company that made these actually started first distributing 
them to schools in Canada. So their use was actually widespread across all of North America. It wasn't just the US. These were widely used in Canada as well. In my personal experience, these were only used in middle school. Our school gave them to us. So for me, that was seventh and eighth grade, which was 99, 2000, and then the 2000, 2001 school years. The 1999-2000 school year one seems to be the most famous and the most nostalgic for millennials. Everybody remembers this. You can find the pictures of it on Reddit. I mean, like this is kind of one of those things that's been buried deep in the back of a lot of millennial brains that it comes to the surface and you're like, oh my God, I had that. It of course says something about the millennium across the front because everything in and around the year 2000 said something about the millennium and it has this giant 2000 graphic on the front but the alternate image you know because you could turn it side to side and see something else it was like a bike or something like that i unfortunately don't have that one anymore but i do still have mine from the 2000 2001 school year and it also says millennium across the front much smaller but it does say millennium and it has some sort of space kind of graphic and of course it's in that cool wide 2k blue color palette with like silver and you know different shades of blue and schools use these for a ton of different functions. They had so much stuff built into them. Obviously, a main purpose of them was to teach kids to be organized and to track their assignments. But some schools used it for bathroom passes, like your teacher would have to sign or initial the planner for you to use the bathroom. Some would require parents to sign off on it each week or each day, I guess, depending on the age to show that you know, they knew what your homework was every day to, to make sure you weren't lying about it probably. And these were used in thousands of schools across the US and Canada. Some people had them in elementary school, some people had them all the way through high school. A ton of people though, and this may just be a coincidence because a lot of people my age were in middle school around this time, but a ton of people that I have talked to had these specifically in middle school like I did. So I had to do some serious digging to try to figure out the origin or really any information about this planner. And I wanted to know who made these planners and kind of how they managed to get them into practically every school in the, in, on the continent. And I wasn't having any luck until I finally found, of course, a Reddit user who claims to have worked at the facility that actually made them at the time. And she said that they would put them together every single summer for practically every school in America. And they were completely the same except for a couple of spots in the planner where the schools could customize them with their school names and things like that. So this person said this company was called Premier Graphics and it was in Washington. So I did a little bit more digging and sure enough, Premier Agendas and they are still making these planners or variations of them now. According to their website, they set out to essentially create mass produced day planners for schools to distribute to their students at a affordable price in Canada way back in 1983. So they introduced them to a few schools in Canada and they got a really, really great response from the teachers and the parents. So they expanded, which led to their widespread use all over North America by the 90s, including good old GET Middle School where little seventh grade Jenna used it to write my assignments, but also to doodle peace signs and track the code names that we made up for the boys in our class and write a lot of notes back and forth to my little friends. And not only did we all end up with the exact same school planner across all of North America, but we all mastered the absolute art form of folding the pages down diagonally <laughs> up and down alternating up until the current day another form of middle school origami that we somehow all just 
knew how to do. And there are a ton of school related ones that I can talk about. And these seem to be like the most random ones when I bring them up to people. I have talked about this one on social media before and maybe on the podcast, but this one truly blew my mind when I found out that other schools did it too. And that is watching the 80s Degrassi in health class. I literally thought this was only my high school. I thought that this was completely unique experience to me and other people who went to my tiny rural Wisconsin high school. So in my high school, when I was in school in the early 2000s, we watched it in health class throughout our ninth grade year. I actually think that that was the only year that we had health class in high school was ninth grade freshman year. So for me, this was the 2001 to 2002 school year. And I had a really cool health teacher. She was just one of those fun, cool teachers that you could go talk to if you were having some sort of issue or something. She was like very down to earth, really upfront, just like cool, very, like complete opposite of the sort of teen movie cliche of the high school health teacher. So I completely thought this was her idea. I, I just thought that she was like really cool and we were fortunate to have this teacher who taught us about issues facing teenagers via a weird, super cheesy 80s teen television show instead of, you know, a textbook. It was not until adulthood and very recently, probably within the last year, that I learned that this was widespread health class high school curriculum and that teenagers in high schools across the country, and I'm sure Canada too, considering that Degrassi is Canadian, watched this as part of their lesson plans. I'm talking, by the way, when I say Degrassi, I'm talking Spike being pregnant with Emma at 14 years old era Degrassi, like full 80s, not the Drake Degrassi. This was the one from the late 80s, and it is just so wildly and delightfully 1987. So I needed to know a little bit more about this, obviously. And as it turned out, this is really interesting. It was actually developed as educational programming for teens, which totally explains why it addressed every issue imaginable that could have faced teens in a really straightforward kind of way. And in a really organized way where it was almost like each episode had a theme that was a different teen issue. One of the creators was a teacher in Ontario. So it really was created to be educational and it was implemented as part of health class curriculum because like I said, each episode kind of tackled a different issue. So it was very easy to teach on an issue with the corresponding episode of the show used to kind of introduce and then facilitate a discussion or a lesson on that topic. And it covered every topic. I mean, we're talking teen pregnancy, alcohol, drugs, AIDS, relationships. I think there was one about like domestic violence, sexual orientation. I mean, you name it, they really, they covered it all. And honestly, good for them because this worked. I mean, I think that this was actually really effective. I was in high school 20 years ago and I still remember this. I mean, I'm still talking about this and also like 100%, I thought that we were just super lucky because we got to watch TV in class. So you're gonna get my attention. I mean, we all remember the level of excitement we'd feel when we saw that old 90s TV set rolled in on the cart at the front of the classroom. Just knowing that we got to spend at least part of the class watching some form of television or movie. And come to find out, at least in this case, it was made to be educational the entire time. Oh my God, and speaking of content created for students, 
Who remembers Channel One News in middle school or high school? I am so disappointed that this is not a memory that I personally have from high school. I am almost positive that my school did not show this. If they did, I somehow have wiped it from my memory. So I don't think that we had this, but this is probably the most widespread one that I have heard from you guys, maybe next to the school planners, but this was everywhere. Channel One News was a current events program created specifically to be shown in schools, middle schools and high school. It was launched nationally in March of 1990 and it actually ran until 2018 after it was sold to a different company in 2014. So this was on for a really, really long time. So anybody who is around my age who were in middle school and high school in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were in school at kind of the height of Channel One news, it seems. You can find old clips of it on YouTube and preparing for this podcast, I watched a few of them since I don't remember from high school. And even though I don't remember this specific programming, it feels so nostalgic to me. It reminds me of Nick News or MTV News or any of those kind of programs that existed in the 90s that addressed serious, more adult topics in a way that felt approachable for kids, but also not overly watered down or sugar-coated for the younger audience. And that's important. That's really important. Looking back, there is nothing that we hated more than being talked down to. Nothing that could lose a kid or a teenager's attention faster than feeling like you're watching kids programming, if that makes sense. Or the feeling that adults weren't really telling us the whole story or the whole truth or trying to dilute the message to make it easier for us to hear or digest just because we were younger. And I feel like Channel One News, from what I saw, really did a good job of making it feel like they were delivering real news to young people. And it also felt cool. It felt relevant. They have like current relevant topics that they talk about. And then there's like pop music that will play or whatever. And the anchors, you guys... I mean, talk about relevant. Of course, we didn't know it at the time, but they had some big names on Channel One News. Maria Menounos got her start on Channel One News. Lisa Ling was on Channel One News. Anderson Cooper was on Channel One News. So they had some talent on this programming. And most of the people that I talked to about this said their schools would show it every morning during homeroom in middle school or high school, which makes sense because that's sort of like your downtime during the school day. My high school didn't have a morning homeroom because we had block scheduling. So we had four 90 minute classes every day with built-in breaks and lunch and then passing periods in between classes that were a little bit longer because the classes were also longer. So I just don't know where they would have shown this because of the way that our schedule was set up. And the way that it worked, which is the most fascinating part of this whole Channel One News story, is that the company that produced it and made it would provide the content free to the schools, as well as all of the equipment that they needed in order to show the programming. So that included a satellite dish because this was the 90s, but also the TVs, like the actual TVs that were mounted on the walls. The company gave them to the schools for free and they would also service and maintain the equipment, the TVs for free. And obviously these are a massive upgrade from like the wheeled in TV carts from the early 90s. And again, this was all free to the schools. They didn't have to pay for the equipment. They didn't have to pay for the programming. They didn't have to pay for the service if something went wrong with the TVs or the satellite dish. But the catch was that they they had these specific requirements for 
kind of the percentage of students that had to view it and also how often and for how many years. So I think it was something like the standard contract was that they were required to show it every school day for three years or something like that. And if the school didn't do it or they canceled their contract, the company could come take the equipment away from them because they didn't really own it. It was kind of part of the contract of them showing this content to the students. And the guy who was behind the company that produced this and distributed this had created similar content previously, content for places like doctor's offices or reading material that he would distribute to places to leave it in their lobbies. And it was kind of the same model. They would distribute it for free, but the businesses had to agree that they would not have any other reading material in their lobbies. It was kind of this idea that your audience had no choice but to view your content. So as you can imagine, there's no surprise here. This became controversial in a lot of school districts, mostly because along with the current events content, that news content, it also included commercials. I believe what it was was two commercials. So two minutes of commercials and 12 minutes of actual news programming, or maybe it was 12 minutes total. So 10 minutes of news and two minutes of commercials. Either way, it was two minutes of commercials, which is fairly minimal if you think about a commercial break. But this meant that kids were essentially being forced to watch commercials every day in school, like school sanctioned viewing of company advertisements. And of course, this was super attractive to advertisers because you have an extremely targeted audience, which is kind of hard to do otherwise. At least it's hard to guarantee. Basically, these advertisers were guaranteed a consistent audience of people within a very specific age group, a very specific demographic. And they knew that they were going to see the commercials because this was basically mandated programming during school and they were sitting in their seats in homeroom or wherever. They couldn't just get up and go call their friend or go get a snack during the commercial breaks like they could when they were watching TV at home. So I would imagine that this was probably very lucrative for the company that made it because advertisers were likely willing to pay a premium for that kind of targeted and focused audiences, basically guaranteed to be watching their ads. But this idea of essentially allowing sponsored content, if we think about it in terms that we would understand now, but the idea of kind of allowing education, public education in a lot of cases to be commodified in that way, like you're allowing businesses to kind of sponsor your education and allowing this into classrooms every single day did not sit well with a lot of people, especially parents. And some school boards actually banned Channel One News. Some states threatened to cut funding from school districts who kept Channel One News going in their schools. I did see one study that was really interesting cited from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which said that kids who watch Channel One News that were surveyed later remember the commercials more than they remember the content, which to me totally makes sense. I talked to a lot of you who said that you don't remember commercials from it, but when I think back to any programming, educational or not, that I watched as a kid, even as an adult, I can literally recite some commercials from my childhood word for word. I mean, I can still sing the pizza bagels jingle start to finish. <laughs> like literally to this day. And I probably haven't seen a pizza bagel commercial in 25 years. I don't have memory like that of much of the actual TV I watched, but a lot of that is probably just the repetitive nature of ads. You know, you watch a TV show once, but you see the same ad how many different times over the course of a couple hours of television viewing. But another critique of 
the show was that a lot of the actual content, you know, outside of the designated two minutes of advertising wasn't truly news content. It was a lot of like marketing tie-in kind of content that promoted something in a little bit more subtle way, which again, this is not anything new. This is kind of what we see in news programming now. I mean, if you think about news programming that are also intended as entertainment, like the Today Show or Good Morning America, a lot of those things are PR tie-ins. You know, a celebrity coming on the show to do an interview, but also to promote their new movie is promoting something, even if it's not a commercial. And when I think about this in terms of me as a teenager, had I had this in school, I think that's the content that I probably would have liked the most because that's what would have felt relevant to my life. You know, that's what I would have been interested in. So I think that that really helped in making it feel appealing to kids, you know, like them featuring a popular music artist very well may have been a media tie-in from the record label, but to me it would have just been entertaining and it would have been cool because it was like I was listening to popular music at school. And it all really gets at an interesting conversation about the lines between entertainment and advertising, which I think is just as relevant, if not even more relevant today in this age of social media that we're living in now. But regardless of the controversy around it, Channel One sounds like a massively universal experience that so, so, so many of you guys remember from the 90s and 2000s. And I also wonder if this would be controversial at all now, living in a time where basically everything that we consume at all times is like some sort of promotion or ad. Something to ponder. And to give you some other things to ponder, I'm going to leave you with a list as always. And these are five other things that I haven't mentioned yet that I often wonder where did that come from, from the 90s and the 2000s? Number five, the George Washington pool hairstyle. You know the one, you'd go in the pool, you'd stick your head under the water upside down so your hair was in front of your face and then you would fold it over the top of your head so that you looked like George Washington. How did we all learn to do this? Even in the early 90s, before I even knew what the internet was, I was doing this in the pool. Also, why did some of us call it the George Washington hair and some of us call it the Martha Washington hair? And also, did anybody look cute with this? And do kids do it now? I have so many questions about this. If anybody knows, please tell me. Number four, getting a pen pal specifically in elementary school. I have talked to so many people who had this experience. A lot of you had this experience as part of some sort of school lesson. This was something that you did in school and that was my experience as well. In my school, I believe it was third grade and we wrote to them throughout the entire school year. I don't remember a single thing about my pen pal, but I remember thinking this was like the coolest thing ever. And I am also pretty sure that our pen pals were, actually no, I was gonna say I think they were international, but I think I, I'm thinking of something else. I don't know. I have no idea where my pen pal was actually, but I remember that I thought it was really, really cool that I had this kind of correspondence with this person that felt like my friend who I didn't actually know and that that was somehow part of school. <laughs> Number three, writing pen 15 on your friend's hand. I really just want to give credit to whoever came up with this because Yes, this is a lame gimmick and really not that funny, but the way that this gave us 
just endless entertainment. We got so big of a kick out of this at recess or in the backseat of the school bus or wherever we could get away with doing this as little 11 year olds. I mean, so simple, but so entertaining. 10 out of 10 to whoever came up with this. Number two, passing a designated notebook back and forth between a group of friends with notes that you would write to each other. This is another one that I literally thought my friends and I were just so smart that we came up with it all on our own. I had no idea that people all over the country, probably all over the world, were also doing this as kids. And as universal as this experience was, it was also pretty universal that something bad would inevitably happen with the notebook, as we called it. In my case, that something was that we decided to let another friend join in on the notebook. And when she took it home, she read all the previous uh, correspondence in it, which included one of us saying that she was acting, I think it was stuck up were the words used ever since she started going out with her air quotes, boyfriend, because I believe this was fifth grade. And as you can imagine, this created quite the drama amongst the fifth grade friend group. And I believe the notebook actually was taken away by the school and we all had to pay a visit to the guidance counselor for that one. And number one, I need somebody to get to the bottom of this. This has been haunting me ever since 2003 when I turned 16 years old. The idea that turning on the interior light in your car while you are driving is illegal. Where did this come from and why did so many of us believe it? I still can't do it. I can't turn on that light when I'm driving. It, it gives me anxiety like this is such a deeply rooted belief. Where did it come from? Somebody tell me. I don't have answers for you on the origins of any of those last five, but this really was a fun one. I could have spent days researching all of these different things. So it was kind of fun to dig into them a little bit more. I really hope that you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it. If you did enjoy this episode, I always appreciate it if you share it with a friend that really helps the podcast grow, helps me get the word out about it. And don't forget to write a review, subscribe so you never miss an episode, and I will be back next week. So I will talk to you all then. Bye.